right, this week we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7. This is a important lesson and a, a very different lesson than the ones that we've done before. This one is entirely, purely just prophecy. And it can be really confusing because when, when Daniel sees this vision that he um, tells about in chapter 7, he sees things that happen on he- in heaven. He sees things that happen in, on earth. He sees things that are symbolic. Uh, there's some interpretation mixed in here that's not symbolic. It can be very confusing. So what we want to do today is there's a handout uh, titled The Prophecies in Daniel. And it's, it's, it's kind of a blank grid that I, uh, made for you. So it would, it would be really important to have this grid in front of you while you're trying to study Daniel chapter 7. You're gonna need a pencil if you don't have a pencil or a pen, something to write with. Uh, you probably need that, your reading glasses, all that good stuff. Because what we're gonna do is we're gonna dissect chapter 7 into the pieces as I just described, and this grid, which prints out on uh, legal-sized paper, has already kind of laid out the framework for you. So if you look at the grid, you'll see several columns. The first column is called stirring up. It's kind of the beginning of the prophecy. The next four columns are dedicated to each of the beasts, beast one, beast two, beast three, beast four. And then there's a column for the Ancient of Days and a column for the Son of Man. Within each of those columns, you've got rows. So there's a whole row that crosses all of those columns. There's a row for what things do we see happening in heaven in this chapter. Then there's a whole nother row for the things that are in this chapter that are symbolic. Then there's another row for the things that are the interpretation, um, the things that are happening on earth, what, what it is that the symbols represent. And then lastly, there's a place for us to record where we actually have seen these prophecies uh, fulfilled on the earth. So we probably won't get that far today, but we definitely can begin dissecting chapter 7 and kind of making notes in these various places on the grid. To make it easier just to communicate with each other, I've numbered the boxes on the grid. I've numbered them um, starting at the left and going to the right. So it's 1 through 7. Uh, on the first row, and then it's 8 through 14 on the next row, so forth and so on. So when we look at Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to be reading out of the uh, New American Standard Version today. It starts out, and, and Daniel says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary. So there's a couple of things we want to look at right there. For one thing, it tells us exactly when Daniel had the dream because we know when Belshazzar's reign started. So we know that Daniel had this dream in or around 553 B.C. And Daniel would have probably been about 70 years old at this time. He had a dream and visions. Uh, most of Most of what's recorded here, uh, he, he refers to it as visions of the night. And he wrote the dream down. It's really important. If you're the kind of person that God speaks to in dreams and your, your dreams aren't just the flotsam and jetsam of the day, if the dreams that you have are, are, are meaningful, 
it's important to keep a pad of paper and a pencil beside your bed so that when you wake up from a dream, you can write it down. It, it'll be very vivid at that moment. You won't think you'll re- forget it, but you will forget it. So if you do have dreams that are significant and want to reflect on them later, be sure to write them down, just as Daniel did here. And then it says he related the following summary of these dreams and visions. So apparently he had a scribe or a secretary of some sort that he dictated this to. Uh, and that, and unfortunately, it sounds like it's a summary of what he saw and not all of the detail. So uh, God, God knows what he's doing. He gives us what we need to have. Um, but it would be nice to have all the details. But in this case, we're looking at a summary of these visions. So let's start out with the vision that Daniel saw. So in verse 2, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So let's just stop there. Let's just take a quick look at that. Uh, The four winds of heaven were stirring up a great sea, Four great beasts were coming out of the sea. Is this happening in heaven? Is this happening on earth? Or is what he's talking about symbolic? Right, it's symbolic. This is is his vision. And later we're going to see some interpretation of it. Parts of the vision happen in heaven. But this is clearly just, just the symbols that we're seeing right now. So where I put that on my grid was in box 8. It's under symbolic, under the stirring up. I just put the winds of heaven, churn up the sea, and four beasts arise from the sea. Now if you want to look at a little bit about what the, the four winds might be and kind of what this means, you could think back probably to scriptures you already know, and recall that the movement of the wind is in scripture generally associated with the hand of God. Just think back for a second. The winds are directed at God's will to accomplish his purpose in receding the floodwaters of Noah. The wind is what divides the Red Sea for the Israelites. The wind brings in the locusts of the ten plagues of Egypt. There's, there's just tons. That's just three right at the beginning of the Bible. But you, there are lots of places in the wind where wind is associated with God making something happen on earth. And in fact, in Psalm 18, there's imagery where God himself is seen riding on the wind. And uh, we also associate the wind with Pentecost, the sound of the great wind. Um, when when the Holy Spirit descended on man. So without going in great detail through every scripture, I think we can pretty safely say that the wind of heaven referred to here is God initiating or the Holy Spirit initiating this activity on earth. So also on my grid, I put up in box one in heaven, that God is stirring up the nation. So just to remind myself that, that God started all this. All right, let's read further. The, the, the four great beasts are being described. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked 
and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. So here we have, this is symbolism, right? Obviously, it's symbolic of something, but it's a, the, the symbol is a lion with wings of an eagle. So I've written that in box nine. It's, it's, it's under the symbolic row, but it has to do with beast one. So we want to put there that it's a lion with the wings of eagle. The wings were torn off. It stands like a man, and it gets the heart of a man. So it starts out like a beast, but it becomes man-like. All right, let's read about the second beast. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. It was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth, between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. So this is beast two, so we want to move over to, to box ten and take some notes here. It's a bear. It's raised up on one side. It's, it's not raised up on its hind legs as, as in attack mode. It's raised up on two, you know, one, what we would say one hand and one, one foot. It's raised on one side so that one side is higher than the other. It has three ribs in its mouth. So I've put that in box 10. And I've put eat your fill of flesh because that's the command that was given to that beast symbolically. All right, we want to move to the next box because now we want to hear about um, Beast 3. In verse 6, After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So this one, we're going to note, it was a leopard with four wings and four heads, and it was given authority to rule. That's what dominion means. It was given the authority to rule. So, so we, here we've just got some just very brief information about each of, of the first three beasts. Then Daniel gets to the, to the fourth beast. And we're going to want to record this information in box 12 on our sheet. The fourth beast Daniel spends a lot more time on. So as you record this information, write little. Because we're going to pick up details about the fourth beast in various places in the chapter. But right here he says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, that's an eleventh horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. That's a lot of information, but it's all going to be important. So in box 12, under beast 4, in the symbolic row, the row we're still talking about symbolism here. We, I've written it, terrifying beast, powerful, large iron teeth, crushes and devours victims, then tramples their remains, different from the other beasts, has ten horns, then the eleventh horn uproots three of the original ones. Um, eleventh horn has eyes like a man and a boastful mouth. And then I've left some, some room so that we can record more information about that, about that beast and all his horns. Now, let's look what happens next. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Now, the scene has changed here. Okay, we're talking about the Ancient of Days, the court that's sitting. Uh, we need to we need to look to see who the Ancient of Days is. Um, but we know probably from all of our previous training, we suspect that that Ancient of Days is God. And so this whole scene, this part is happening in heaven. So when we make notes on this, we want to put it under the Ancient of Days, but we want to move up to box six so that we record these events that are happening in heaven. So in box six, we want to say that that uh, thrones are set in place. Notice that's plural, and it doesn't say who sits in all those thrones. We're going to find that out when we get to Revelation. But for right now, we're going to say thrones are set in place. The Ancient of Days is seated. Now, the Ancient of Days, if you kind of dissect that phrase, that phrase is only used in this chapter of the Bible. It's the only place it it occurs, is, is this chapter in Daniel. Now, ancient means exactly that. It means venerable, ancient, oldest of the old. The, the word days is the Aramaic equivalent of the Hebrew word that means day, as in from sunup to sunset. Now, when you combine the oldest of the old, the ancient, with a you know capital A, um, with a day, um, what brings that brings to mind is the first of Genesis. And if we look at the first of Genesis, Genesis, the very first verse in the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. So this... This term, Ancient of Days, is calling God by his name as creator. He is the God of light. He is light. He is the oldest of the old. He is the one that called days into being. So this is almost the most basic name that we that that you could have for God, other than I am, that I am, that he calls himself. The Ancient of Days is, is God the Creator. Now, we also see a lot of verbiage in this particular part about there being fire around this throne. He's, his uh, throne was ablaze with flames. Now, some of your translations may say that the throne is in flames or like a fiery flame. That depends on your translation. The original Aramaic does not have the word like in it. The sense that you should be getting here is that the throne is a burning flame. Um, This is very like the flame that you would associate with the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God himself. If we look in Acts 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. So this is the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's the representation of God as a flame. So this, this throne of God is associated with fire um, pretty much every time anybody sees it. In fact, you get a, this, this description in Daniel is very concise. doesn't have a lot of detail in it. But there's a terrific description in Ezekiel. The very first verse of, of the first chapter of Ezekiel describes Ezekiel seeing this exact same scene in heaven, the scene of God seated on his throne. I think it's worthwhile looking at because you get a whole lot better sense for what this fire is and what these wheels are um, that that are referred to. It says its wheels were a burning fire on this throne. That Ezekiel gives us a little better description. Now I'm going to skip around through here uh, and and just kind of skip through the more descriptive pieces of Ezekiel's passage. It goes from verse 1 through verse 28. But essentially, Ezekiel is uh, sitting by a river. He's a, he's a contemporary of Daniel's, and so he's in exile also in Babylon. And he's sitting by the river, and the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And I looked, and I, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it. Um, and in the middle of it, there was something like glowing metal in the midst of this fire. You know how, you know, if you've looked at a, a, a blacksmith work, working with metal, how white hot burning metal can be. This is what he's trying to describe. So within that white hotness, within that were figures resembling four living beings. And he's going to describe these living beings. And we, and we need to look at that because it has to do with these wheels. But the, he doesn't name them in this particular passage. But later you see other descriptions of these same living beings and other visions. And they, this, these beings are the ones that are called cherubim. So they had human form and they each had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like calves hooves and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides were human hands. So here you have a picture of a four-sided beast. It has four heads, it has or four faces, it has four wings, it has four sides. And under each of these wings, so there's a wing on each side, under each of these wings are human hands. The wings of the four cherubim touch each other. Um, their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. Each had the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of a bull, and the face of an eagle. Their wings were spread out above, and each had two touching another being. So if you picture here, essentially what you're getting a picture of here is, is God's honor guard. This is his, his, like you see the honor guards march with flags in very close formation. That's what you're seeing with these cherubim. They are, they are, Basically in formation, they've got their, their wings touching one another and they move in unison. 
The wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. So they've got two wings up, two wings covering, and then two wings down covering their bodies. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. So you can see that as the spirit of God got ready to move, this honor guard of cherubim moved with him. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. And the fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. It's, he's describing a very dynamic, powerful, really frightening scene where these beasts move with the speed of lightning. And, and lightning is, is essentially flashing back and forth between them and among them. And as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on earth beside each of the living beings. And where, whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four di- directions without turning as they moved. So these wheels are, they remind me of casters. Uh, this description reminds me of round casters. So, Apparently, these these wheels don't, and the cherubim themselves do not have to turn to face any different direction because their their faces are already facing all four directions. Apparently, these the rims of these wheels were lofty and awesome, and the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. We've we've read in earlier lessons about the eyes of God roaming of the Lord roaming through the earth. This is. Here we have a, almost a physical description of what this looks like. These are these are eyes on these wheels of these cherubim that accompany God wherever He's moving. When the Spirit moves, it says, "Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. Whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction, and the wheels rose close beside them." For the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse, like an awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. This is like, like a sky over them. And above the expanse that was over their heads there was something resembling a throne. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. And he goes on to describe this figure as being gl- so bright, he's like glowing metal with fire all around and within and radiance all around him. And he ends this vision saying, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So here you see just a, a lot more detail about what these wheels are that Daniel's talking about and what this fire is. And Daniel notes the, that the, the fire not only is in and around the throne, it you know is the throne, but there is a river of fire flowing out from the throne as well. Now fire throughout the Bible has been associated with eliminating evil and leaving only what is holy. In some cases, it completely burns, consumes what it's burning. That's as in when fire rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. There was no goodness in those cities whatsoever. They were entirely and utterly consumed. At the other extreme, you have fire consuming nothing at all because 
where it is resting is completely holy. Um, the, the, the picture that comes to mind there, the example, uh, would be the burning bush. Moses in the burning bush. The burning bush was not consumed because it was on holy ground. It was already holy. There was nothing to be consumed there. But usually when you see fire in the scripture, it's, it's somewhere in between. It's, it's a, it's a, like a refiner's fire where it's consuming what is dross, what is evil, what is bad, what is unholy, and leaving what is often called gold or silver, what is pure, has been purified, what is holy, and what is set apart. When, when, when you hear the word holy or the word sanctified, what you need to think in your head is set apart. It's set apart for the service of God, worthy of the service of God. And that's throughout Scripture. Let's read a couple of places where it talks about fire purifying um, and often purifying and refining the saints. Malachi 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he, this is God, is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And you have an example in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. John the Baptist is speaking. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here... He's talking about us. He's talking about the whole Jesus coming to baptize us in his most holy spirit and with fire, completely burning away the chaff and making us holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So it's talking about our works being subjected to this holy fire that completely burns them away. Only the works that are, that are unto the Lord, that are pure, that are, are of good quality, will be left. And, and those who have taken the talents that God has given them and have hidden them in the ground or have wasted them, they've built nothing but straw on this foundation of Christ that we've been given. And in the, in the end, their works are going to be shown to be straw because they're just going to burn right up in the holy, in that holy flame. 
But what a comfort it is to know that even if that happens, even if your works are completely burned up, you yourself will be saved. It's just you'll be saved as if you just came through fire. And then finally, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, we re- since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So fire is very clearly tied closely with the essence of God, with the Holy Spirit, with the throne, with, with where God is, there is fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Let's go on and look and see what happens next. It says that river of fire was flowing out from before him. The court sat. And the books were opened. It doesn't say what books they are, um, but clearly this is a, 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 a scene of judgment that is happening in heaven. And Daniel says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Because he could not believe what the stuff that was coming out of the mouth of this horn in the presence of God. And Daniel says, I kept looking until the beast was slain, its body was destroyed, and given to the burning fire. Now, when I, it says given to the burning fire, I, it says the burning fire. I assume it's the fire that he just finished describing. So I'm assuming that the, the fire that it, this beast is thrown into is this river of fire that's flowing out from before the throne. So here we see the, the uh, Ancient of Days judging the beast, the beast being slain, its body destroyed and burned up. You know, you can either put it under the beast or put it under the Ancient of Days. But I put it under the Ancient of Days. And I put it up in what's happening in heaven. Although you could just as easily have put it in box 13 as being, you know, something symbolic. But it sounds to me like that beast is being utterly destroyed. Pretty literal. So I put it up in box 6 as, as something that's happening in heaven. Uh, verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, beasts 1 through 3, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So I've put that over in box 5. It's, it's something that clearly is happening in heaven because this authority for these beasts is coming from heaven. Um, and so when they're stripped of their authority, that happens in heaven. So I've just put up in, in verse 5, I mean in verse 5, in box five, that beasts one, two, and three are stripped of their authority but allowed to live for a period of time. All right, so now we're going to move over because Daniel's getting ready to talk about the Son of Man. So we're moving over to the last column now, and he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this whole scene is still happening in heaven because we... We, it says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man is coming. It talks about how he's presented to the ancient of days. We know that's happening in, in heaven. 
So we're, we're talking here about things that go in box seven on our grid. Things that relate to the Son of Man but are happening in heaven. So let's take a, let's take a look here at who this Son of Man might be. It's given us a couple of clues. It's called him the Son of Man. It's told us that, that he comes with the clouds of heaven. It doesn't say the Son of Man because Daniel is just describing what he's seen here. He says, you know, I saw somebody and it looked like a man. Uh, that, that's what he's saying. So this is one like a Son of Man. However, it's interesting to know that this title of Son of Man is not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. Throughout Ezekiel, God calls Ezekiel you son of man do such and such, and you son of man say such and such. But it's it's more of a, a it's not a title as much as it's saying, hey you. And there's a, a couple of places in scripture that can give us some hint as to the identity of this son of man. First is, he comes on the clouds of heaven. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 1 verse 6. The disciples are talking to Jesus. They said, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So they just watched him being gathered up into a cloud. When he comes back, he's going to be in clouds as well. So here's the first hint that, you know, this might be Jesus. There's another great big hint, and that is the witness of Jesus himself, who called, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. He's the one that turned this actually into a title. And according to the NIV Study Bible footnotes, um, they have a footnote uh, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This was Jesus' most common title for himself. He called himself the Son of Man more often than he called himself anything else. And that title is used 81 times in the Gospels, according to the NIV. That's that's pretty strong evidence that the Son of Man is Jesus and to confirm it, he's given authority, glory, and sovereignty. So up in box 7, under Son of Man in heaven, I've put one like a Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. Son of Man is brought before the Ancient of Days. Son of Man is given authority and so- glory and sovereignty. So now let's see what happens. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. 
So let's stop there. Now, we've switched now. We're not in heaven. I mean, Daniel's in heaven, but he's getting the interpretation. He's finding out what all this means to us here on earth. So we're going to, on our grid that we're trying to fill out, we're going to move down to that third stripe in the middle that says earth interpretation. And in box 29, under the stirring up, what we've just found out is that it's four kingdoms that arise from the earth. Now, if we look, we would record that in box 29 and look up to box 8 where we recorded the symbolism. Symbolically, what was said was the winds of heaven churn up the sea and four beasts arise from the sea. The interpretation of what that is on earth is four kingdoms arise from the earth. So we found out something and that is that the sea is symbolic for the earth, the nations of the earth. This is this is consistent with how we see it being used elsewhere in scripture. Um, this interpretation makes a lot of sense. So when you see the, the term C used symbolically, this is a place where you can go to say, look, that that is symbolic of something happening that's stirring up the nations on earth. So now let's see what happened. We, know, we now know that each of these beasts is a king. So we might put uh, in in boxes 30, 31, 32, and 33, we just might make a little note there that these are kings. Each beast is a king. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for all ages to come. Now here, Daniel has you know, this interpretation has skipped around here. So first we're talking about the beasts or four kings that they arise on the earth. But all of a sudden he starts talking about the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So now we've heard a couple of things about kingdoms lasting forever. We just read that the son of man had a kingdom that's not going to be destroyed. His dominion is everlasting and will not pass away. And here we see the saints of, will also receive the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So we have here what you can put. I, I put it in both 34 and 35. So I put it under the earth interpretation. And under 34, I put that the saints receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Uh, and I put it in box 34, which is under the Ancient of Days. Because it refers in this verse to the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom. And then in, in box 35, I've put that all the peoples and nations will worship the Son of Man. His dominion never passes away and his kingdom is never destroyed. Now, these two statements are related. Um, and I, I'm not going to get real hung up about you know which box on the grid you put it in. As long as you capture the information that this is actually happening on earth so it's it's an interpretation that says that there is going to be a kingdom ruled by the son of man and the saints that will never pass away so then daniel says yeah 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 that's great but that's not what i really want to know about i want to know about the fourth beast because it was different from all the others exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze which it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. 
And, and he goes on to say he wants to know the meaning of the ten horns that were on the head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, namely that the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. Now that's interesting because if you think back a few verses, Daniel said the horn was smaller. So apparently this horn started out small, it grew, um, as it grew, it completely uprooted three of the of the horns of the pre, of the original ten. It uprooted three of the horns, and then it continued to grow, getting larger and larger until it was larger than the other the horns, the seven horns that were left. So he says, I kept looking. So he's waiting for you know the angel or somebody to tell him what all this meant. Meanwhile, he's still watching stuff going on. There's stuff happening while he's trying to find out what in the world is he looking at. So he says, I kept looking, and that horn, he's talking about the 11th horn, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So this tells us that um, that we did good in putting that information about the saints receiving the kingdom in box 34 because that occurred when the Ancient of Days intervened. Up until that point, the 11th horn, that ruler, that king, was overpowering the saints. So that's some information that we want to put in box 33. It tells us something about the beast. It tells us something that's going to happen on earth it's it's the beat that 11th horn of the beast is going to oppress and overpower the saints until god comes and pronounces judgment and the time arrives when the saints take possession of the kingdom so then finally this angel or whoever it is daniel's talking to gets around to interpreting some of this for him and and he says the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, And they, that is the saints, will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So, let's, you know, kind of back up. That's a lot of interpretation there. Let's back up to the beginning of it. It talks about the fact that the the fourth kingdom is going to devour the whole earth. We kind of figured that out already. But now he says that the ten horns are kings that will arise within this fourth kingdom and that the eleventh horn was an eleventh king that is going to uproot three kings now we we have a handout you want to take a look at this handout 
um, uh, that is Title III. Because in evaluating these horns, we have to decide, you know, are these horns symbolic of something? Is there meaning behind the horns? Um, is there meaning behind the number of kings that we're seeing? So let's take a, a look quickly at the, at the numbers that are involved. There were ten horns to start with. So if you remember back to a previous lesson, what did the number ten mean? What did it connote in throughout Scripture when it was used symbolically? Right, the number ten connoted lots, enough, plenty, a plethora. Okay, so so ten could mean lots. There could be the ten horns could be lots of nations. The eleventh horn rises up. What did eleven connote when we looked at that? Evil, bad. It had connotations of evil. So we we can pretty much assume, if we haven't figured this out already, that this 11th king is, is evil. Now, three horns are uprooted. We haven't looked at three yet, so let's look at this handout that we've got on three. There's, you know, a number of interpretations as to what three means symbolically. Some of the scholars I looked at said it meant completeness. Others said it implied a beginning, middle, and an end. Uh, it had to do with sacred matters, or it just meant a small number. So, you know, not wanting to kind of take these at face value, and since they all disagreed with one another anyway, I looked at three throughout Scripture where it's used symbolically, just like we did for all the other numbers that we've looked at. As in the past, I've not included scriptures from Daniel and Revelation because that's what we're trying to interpret. But I've included scriptures from all of the, the rest of the Bible. And I, you know, threw out the ones that seem to be very clearly only literal. You know, the guy was 33 years old or whatever it was. Um, and, and I left the ones that seem to have at least a double meaning. And in fact, one of the interesting things that I did find was the three always has a double meaning. When it's used symbolically, it it not only has its symbolic meaning, but it also is always literal. The number always means exactly what it says. Three days, three animals, three festivals, three whatevers. It it has a literal meaning, but it can also have a symbolic meaning. And and if we look through these scriptures, we're going to see that the number three is consistently associated with a special sign, often a sacred sign, usually in conjunction with a contract or a promise or some major step in God's plan. So what I did was when I pulled out these scriptures in your handout, I've put in italics just briefly what the number three in that scripture related to. And let's take a minute and read just the italics. You can go back and you know study the scriptures on your own. But the first scripture was three was the number. There were three, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram. These threes in these animals were all used to seal the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with Abraham. The next verse, three angels of the Lord came to Abraham to announce the impending birth of, of Isaac, a, another huge step in God's plan. The 
the three is also used in Egypt when Moses asked for the Israelites to be allowed to go three days journey into the wilderness to worship God, to sacrifice to God. Now, you know, a wilderness is a wilderness. One day's journey would have been plenty. But he asked for three days journey because this journey was intended to be a sign to the Egyptians. Three, there were uh, three days that the plague of the locusts covered Egypt, another sign. When they got, finally got out of Egypt and were given the law in the desert, God established three perpetual feast days to be devoted to the Lord each year. He said, I want you to worship me at the special festivals, special feasts, three times each year. And that's still, Jews still worship at those three special feasts each year. If you move on, uh, on the next page, it talks about the fact that it was, it was 3,000 men who were killed to atone for the worshiping of the golden calf. In Leviticus, three years, fruit was forbidden to, to the Israelites after a tree was planted. And then this next one is kind of interesting. There were three set cities of refuge to be set up to prevent blood guiltiness before the Lord. Now, there were actually six cities that that God had them set up, but he didn't refer to them as six cities. He referred referred to them as, he said, set up six cities, but set up three cities here and three cities there. There there were two sets of three cities, and the purpose of these cities was to prevent the spilling of innocent blood. It was a... completed a, a contract or a covenant. It was a, a way to fulfill the law without becoming guilty, blood guilty before the Lord. If you move on down to Second Samuel, you see that uh, after David committed a, the sin of taking a census of the Israelites, remember the Israelites weren't to be numbered. They were to be numberless. The, as many as the sins of the sea... David took a census and the Lord offered him a choice between three different punishments to atone for essentially breaking that um, covenant or offending that covenant. When Solomon built the temple to the Lord, he offered three times a year burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar in the temple. When Elijah was staying with a widow and the widow's son died, Elijah prayed for this child to be resurrected, and the child was resurrected. But but as he prayed, Elijah stretched himself out over the child three times. Now, one would have been sufficient because our Lord can resurrect somebody with just the thought of our prayer. Even before we think it, he knows it. You don't have to tell him three times. The three stretching out three times over this child was symbolic. Then, when you get to Ezra, now you're past the time of Daniel, and this is where the Israelites were a remnant, were allowed to return to Jerusalem to, to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And three days were given for the former exiles to assemble in Jerusalem to repent and make a new covenant with God. 
If you continue on, you see that three days is the number of days Esther asked the Jews to fast before she broke the law and went in before the king without, without him raising the scepter to her. Three years were the number of years Isaiah went naked as a sign to Egypt of their pen, pending captivity. This was at the command of the Lord. And then Jesus points to Jonah's three days in the belly of the fish and his own three days of death as the only sign that would be given to the Jews that he was the Messiah. And he did this in a couple of places. Um, He did it in Matthew. He also did it in John. But it's significant that three days in the fish, three days in death, these are the only signs that were to be given to the Jews that he's the Messiah, other than what they would know, should have known from studying the scripture. After Jesus goes, you have Pentecost. How many souls were saved at Pentecost? 3,000 souls were received, received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Three days, Saul was blinded. This is Paul who wrote two-thirds of the you know, New Testament. For three days, he was blind. And that caused, during that time, he was converted. Then, the great promise to the Gentiles. When God was calling the uh, uh, Apostle Peter to minister to the Gentiles, he, lo- he gave Peter a vision in which a blanket of unclean animals was lowered to him. And three times God asked him to eat of these unclean animals. Um, and this was God's way of preparing Peter to minister to us, to the Gentiles. And lastly, this is a great verse. We're going to actually read this one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. 3 is the number of witnesses that verify God's promise that Jesus is the Son. Let's read this. It says, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And if we receive the testimony of men, you know, if we can accept an oath that a man gives in court, how much more greater is the testimony of God? So if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. So to me, this, this is just overwhelming that three is associated with a sign. So we, we could say, you know, we're, we're looking at these three nations that are being uprooted, that, that these, these are being uprooted as a sign um, of, of what's happening. And then the number you're left with, back to these horns, is that there's seven horns left that are not uprooted. And if you remember back to our studies on the number seven, seven was associated with completeness, enough, the whole enchilada. So if we were going to interpret these horns symbolically, what you would say is that out of a large number of nations, that's the ten, out of a large number of nations, an evil ruler will arise. He will uproot three kingdoms as a sign from God, leaving the remaining kingdoms representing the entirety of the Gentile nations. Now, having said all that, 
you should be aware that you need to segregate out what's symbolic prophecy and what is an interpretation. And that's what we're trying to do on this sheet here, this grid, is to help us separate this out. This isn't an interpretation. We don't need to apply symbolism or symbolic interpretation to it. It's already interpreted for us. So I believe we should take this literally. We should take interpretations down in box 33, down in the interpretation. We want to say that there are ten king, kings or rulers within the fourth kingdom that an 11th ruler arises and destroys three of the previous rulers. That does not negate the significance of those numbers, but we don't want to get confused and be looking for numbers other than the literal ones in this particular, in this particular instance. We, we've run out of time. We need to stop here. And this is probably a good place to stop because you, this is an awful lot of technical information. It's confusing. You're going to need a, a chance to sit down and kind of think through it, go back through it on your own and, and uh, make sure that you agree and understand with where these things are on this grid. And I would challenge you as kind of the next step this week, go back through Daniel chapter 2 and fill it in. Fill out the information in Daniel chapter 2 about the four beasts on this grid as well. I've, I've left you room on the grid to do that. Daniel chapter 2 has some different information in it. It gives us a little bit more information about these, about these kingdoms. And if you, and if you can, then go on a, another step further and begin filling out down at the bottom what you think the, the actual historical working out of this was. We've talked about this in some previous lessons about what some of these beasts might be uh, based on what we actually see happening in history. So you can begin to fill out the very lowest part of the grid where it talks about Earth historical. And we'll you know, try to gather all this stuff together next week, review it. Um, don't, don't worry if it's more work than you want to do. You definitely don't have to do it. I, I will hand out grids that are com- already filled out. But you certainly have enough information at this point to uh, do some digging on your own. And I, I hope you enjoy it, and, and I hope that it, that it blesses you as you dig into the Word. Let's close with a prayer.